Welcome to the Table of Perspective, where we take a deeper look into how the internal narrative of an individual determines their responses to life itself and all it entails. I am your host today, Beulah, and we will be going into part two of the Book of Spice by John O'Connell. And um, we'll begin off with a first song I hope you enjoy. In the morning.
Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. In the morning, when I rise. In the morning, when I rise. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, and you can have what's wrong. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, and you can have what's wrong. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. Thank you.
So what the Book of Spice is, as discussed with the last um, episode of, of this series, is basically a breakdown of every type of spice from Anise to Zidori, according to um, the introduction on the book. Um, but I didn't actually elaborate really on what the author himself had said about the book. So I'll just be reading a little bit of the introduction and it would kind of make a clear uh, pathway almost to the kind of perspective he had when writing it. In the introduction, he begins by saying, I remember vividly the first time I tasted spicy food. I was nine or ten and we, my mother, sister and I, had come to London to visit Auntie Sheila, a deeply pious or pious Irish Catholic woman who lived in a tiny flat in Marylebone that would now be worth about 16 billion euros. Auntie Sheila was not actually our aunt, but one of our mother's oldest friends. And she fascinated us children because she claimed to be or claimed to have seen an angel who once visited her in the night. For the record, the angel had the most beautiful face you have ever seen and the mass of golden ringlets. It smiled at her as angels should, according to the book. Um, on this occasion, we had a picnic at Hyde Park. Amid the deck chairs and joggers, a blanket was spread out and green bags emblazoned with legends of St. Michael emptied onto it. There were white fluffy rolls and crisps and bottles of lemonade. Tubs of white goo with raw cabbage and tangerine floating in it. Caramel delight desserts, liquefied cream brulee and topped with starbursts of cream. The chicken legs that were coated in something bright red and sticky and oddly yogurt smelling. Ugh, I said, fishing one of these legs out of the plastic tray. What the hell is this? It's tandoori chicken, replied my mother. It comes all the way from Tandor in India. She leaned forward and whispered sharply, don't say what the hell in front of Auntie Sheila. I bit into the chicken. It was delicious. One of the most delicious things I'd ever eaten. How clever were the citizens of Tandor to have invented such a dish? That creamy sourness, that gentle peppery heat with a hint of lemon. And hang on, what were those other flavors? The ones overtaking on the inside lane as my saliva went to work. There was only one word for them, a word I had never needed to use before. Spicy. This would have been 1981, possibly 1982. Only a few years after, a young woman in the produ product development uh, at Marks & Spencer called Kathy Chapman transformed food retail in Britain by introducing a range of high-quality chilled ready meals. The first of these was Chicken Kiev, a huge hit in 1979. A version of Chicken Tikka Masala, the, nation, the nation's favorite dish, followed soon afterwards, uh, quite possibly uh, Marks & Spencer's St. Michael-branded tandoori chicken legs which Chapman's idea too. I wouldn't be surprised. CTM, as chicken tikka masala is known in the trade, is supposed to be a British invention. The son of a chef, Ahmed Aslam Ali, claims his father invented it in the early 1970s in his Shishmahal restaurant in Glasgow. After a customer complained that his tandoori chicken, and tandoori as we all know, um, refers to the clay oven in which the chicken is cooked, not the place. It was actually a bit dry. Ali's solution was to open a can of Campbell's tomato soup, add some garam masala and a dash of cream and pour it over the chicken. Pakka, as someone might have liked to say. Uh, the story continues on how he kind of understood the, the creation of the chicken, had gone into the spices and, and the background of that. Um, and then it also goes further on how certain foods like... Um, Zatar, which is common in the Middle East, it's spice mix, 
a lot of that goes into the next few lines that he's written about. But the part that I wanted to, to focus on, actually, was he, he's mentioned something about spice itself and how, as, as I'll elaborate now, it says that so sometimes spice uses define or rather defines food cultures shared by people who have little else in common. In Jerusalem, ownership of local staples such as the spice mix zatar is fiercely contested by Jews and Arabs. But as Yotam Otlehengi, I do apologize for the, the pronunciation of that, as well as Sam Tamimi point out, Israel and Palestinian food cultures are mashed and fused together in a way that is impossible to unravel. They interact all the time and influence each other so constantly, so nothing is really pure anymore. As with language, so with food, flux is the natural state of things. Any attempt to marshal dishes into rigid canons will fall or fail because of the casual, elitary way recipes are transmitted in the real world. Of course, global travel and immigration and the internet have catalyzed this process. Last week I had some prunes that needed using up, so I cooked a late medieval lamb stew from a National Trust cookbook. Reading the recipe, I thought it would be more interesting if instead of black pepper I used Javanese kubeb or the African melaguta pepper, also known as grains of paradise, both of which were available in England in the 15th century. Neither was sold in my, my local Sainsbury, surprise, but Brixton Market in the heart of South London's African-Caribbean community came up trumps, and even if it hadn't, they would have been simple to source online. Botero observes that all societies develop routines and rituals, perhaps even myths, to regulate the use of food. Instead, or rather indeed, to confer a value upon food that goes beyond the mere consumption of it. I really appreciate that observation because, um, as I've discussed before, um, the, the matter of fact that just about everyone has certain ingredients in the country, but the way that it is produced or rather consumed, depending on the certain spices that change the dish itself, uh, really has uh, an exceptional, I guess, impact on or, or, or clarification on how humans interact with resources. Um, there was a specific page that I thought would quite be enjoyable to read from, and that was from Vanilla. It's commonly used in, in baking and, and dishes that I'm sure just about everyone has tasted. Um, but the way that it's explained is quite enjoyable. So Vanilla, otherwise known as Vanilla Planifolia, for anyone whose childhood was unspent, as Philip Larkin has it, in the Britain of 1960s and 70s, the word vanilla is intimately bound up with the canary yellow slabs of Wall's ice cream squished between brittle, sugar-coated cardboard wafers. Funnily enough, the 1970s especially was a boom time for ice cream engineering. The Cornetto, where a careful layering of oil and chocolate insulates the cone from the ice cream and stops it from going soggy, was invented in 1976 by the Italian company Spica and had the immediate effect of making all other ice creams look rather basic. But the simple vanilla block had a nostalgic force. Harking back as to it did in the, the less frantic days of the 1920s, when butcher Thomas Wald II finally implemented a scheme he had dreamed up before the First World War, to use his factories and staff to make ice cream all over the summer months when demand for pies and sausages fell. Vanilla is still, for most people, the default ice cream flavor, the base camp from which we light out more exotic tastes. 
or raided a lot of territories. And despite what we tell ourselves, we are a conservative breed when it comes to food. In search of the luscious substance in 2004, observes that the British ice cream buyers chose vanilla 90% of the time. Not that vanilla ice cream lacks a noble heritage. Between 1978 and 1979, before he became the third president of the US, Thomas Jefferson spent time in Paris as minister to France. There he had his first taste of vanilla ice cream and was so bowled over that he asked the chef, possibly his butler, Adrian Petit, for the recipe. Jefferson's handwritten copy can be found at the Library of Congress. It begins as follows. Mix the yolks and sugar. Put the cream in a fire, or on fire in a casserole. First putting a stick of vanilla. When near boiling, take it off and pour it gently into the mixture of eggs and sugar. Stir well. The claim sometimes made that Jefferson introduced ice cream to America is false. It was being made by colonists as early as the mid-18th century. Perhaps using the recipe in Hannah Glass's Art of Cookery from 1751, which involves raspberries. But Jefferson undoubtedly popularized it by serving it as presidential banquets. One diner, the physician Samuel Mitchell, noted that ice creams were produced in the form of balls in frozen material enclosed in covers of warm pastry, exhibiting a curious contrast as if the ice had just been taken out from the oven. And the food orders he placed with William Short, U.S. charge of affairs in Paris, contain frequent requests for batons of vanilla. Jefferson was unable to source locally. The green-stemmed creeping vanilla orchid from the Spanish van vanilla, a diminutive of vaina or pod, is indigenous to the rainforests of southeastern Mexico, Central America and West Indies. The, there are more than a hundred different spices, but almost all cultivated vanilla in the world comes from vanilla planifolia, sometimes called V. frangas, which in its wild state can be known to grow 80 feet tall. Its long, narrow pod is harvested unripe, at which stage it has no flavor at all. For the pods to have any culinary application, fermentation must be forced by dipping them in hot water, sweating them for 10 days, spreading them out in the sun, then wrapping them in blankets overnight and drying them. This curing process, called Bourbon Method, after the French Indian Ocean island, named Reunion in 1793, on which it was first employed, can take five or six months, over the course of which the beans lose four-fifths of their weight. It is wondrous intensive work, which requires constant vigilance. Growers compare it to looking, for, looking after a newborn baby. At the end of the curing, the active ingredient, vanillin, emerges from the form of a crystalline surface frosting called givre, or giver. Although for some reason, Tahitian vanilla pods become flavorsome without ever producing givre. In Uganda, in the 1970s, the American spice company McCormick set up a factory for the rapid artificial curing of cut beans, but the venture was not successful. Only in the 1990s did Ugandan vanilla industry revive, and nowadays many smaller Ugandan producers prefer to use the Bourbon method because it gives far better results. Production of cured vanilla in the French islands, Reunion, Mauritius and Madagascar surpassed that of Mexico, the one-time center production in the early 20th century. By 1929, Madagascar was supplying over 80% of the world market, and it has continued to do so ever since. Just to cut through uh, a little bit here, uh, although this book speaks about uh, you know the origin 
originating country rather of vanilla, um, I found that a lot of people actually are not familiar with using vanilla or actually cannot taste it in certain foods. And I think that having a book like this is quite encouraging um, when it comes to spreading and broadening uh, your understanding of different cultures and applications of food. Um, and I'd highly advise, I guess, just research into it. Not only is it nice to have information about everyday things, but there's also, I guess, conversation points that can be started by using this information. Um, so we're going to go into our second song, and right after that, we'll close it off. So please enjoy. <laughs>
listening to Active FM. Christ music is hot music. So back on Vanilla from this Book of Spice by John O'Connell, um, something interesting is that people don't understand Vanilla itself is quite expensive. If you've ever gone to a shop and found van- vanilla pods, you'll you'll find that it's not a ingredient that you could re- readily use, rather, um, because for the quantity of beans or seeds, rather, from the pod that you need to get a good payoff of vanilla, you wouldn't consider it, I guess, a good idea in contrast to the price. Because vanilla is expensive, demand massively exceeds supply. Much of what passes for vanilla is synthetic vanilla flavoring. The cheap vanilla ice cream of Britain, which contains very little vanilla and less cream, is surely destined for renaming, says Andrew Dalbley. Vanilla is a fennel with a similar structure to eugenol, found in cloves, and an isoeugenol, like nutmeg. It can be manufactured easily from coal, tar, or more commonly waste pulp liquor, a byproduct of the paper making process. Waste liquor consists mainly of lignin, a substance found in and between the cell walls of land plants. Lignin contributes to the rigidity of plants and makes up 25% of the dry weight of wood. It is not one of the compounds that are variable crossing bonded over polymer and different phenyl units. The interesting thing about synthetic vanillin is that it is not fake, not an imitation, even though it is created using an artificial process. It is chemically identical to vanillin from the vanilla bean, but vanilla from the vanilla bean has a richer flavor, sweet, aromatic, musky, because of numerous other compounds present. So, ironically, the, puri- the purity of synthetic vanillin counts against it, giving it a harsh odor and bitter aftertaste. That said, wood-based vanillin is considered a force for good in the winemaking world. When wine is stored in, o- stored in oak casts, vanillin molecules are leached from the wood, contributing to the changes that constitute the aging process. The first known use of vanilla is a flavoring for chocolate. When the conquistadors were in Mexico in 1520, the soldier who would go on to be Hernán Cortés Bernal Díaz del Castillo noticed that the Aztec Emperor Montezuma drinking chocolate flavored with what was Aztecs called ground black vanilla pods mixed with honey. Díaz noticed that the Aztecs drank their chocolate cold, whipped into a froth so thick it must be taken to the mouth wide open. Um, That is just another part of how Although we have certain ingredients in in parts of our countries, um, and even as you mentioned with the tandoori, being able to go to certain markets where foods and and spices are more available, I think that it's it's really quite enjoyable to see how different cultures have come together. And we have something called fusion foods, which, uh, as you might know, is different cultures or different variations of the the process of, of preparing foods are mixed together with certain ingredients so for instance you have fusion food of an asian and an indian or an asian and african uh, type of food cuisine where the spices and the ingredients are prepared in in similar ways to their countries but mixed together in the dish Um, and as a whole i think it's a really enjoyable field so to say to to mess around in and kind of have fun because you have to eat the food ultimately so why don't we experiment and have a flavorful dish that encourages you to i guess 
understand more about those things that already exist in your environment and you are consuming. So that'll be all from me today. I hope that you enjoyed that. And then maybe we'll be inspired to give it a try. If you're not one who cooks or prepares any food, maybe spoil your family or friends and um, just, you know, experiment a little bit with some food in the kitchen. There's a sort of process that you can follow to get a, a an outcome that is acceptable or even exceptional um, and finding that out and practicing in it is something that you can really benefit from as a skill so i hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and cheers share your thoughts with us send in your questions or simply tell us what you love most about active affair on the WhatsApp line 084-628-6060. Radio has never been better. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Your love is so much better, sweeter than any other. Deeper than words can explain. Your love they pass my brain. When I go to the east, then say no. When I go to the west, then say no. And they ask to be my provider. Like Romeo, when it is Juliet, don't know.